Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's episode is the second of seven events for distant friends and intimate enemies, the U.S. and Russia, the Fall 2020 Speaker Series at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. If you want to see the entire schedule, go to Reese's website at www.ucis.pit.edu slash crease, that's C-R-E-E-S. The 19th century was the age of empires, as the late Eric Hosbaum put it. Unlike the British and French empire, the Russian and American empires were continental. They expanded over land and either cleansed, displaced, or incorporated the indigenous populations they encountered. Moreover, the Russian and American empires included settlement, ideas of the frontier, and a shared sense of historical mission. Here's Willard Sunderland and Daniel Immervar to discuss the similarities and differences of the Russian and American empires and how they fit into the larger age of empire. Daniel Immervar is a historian of the United States and the world, serving in the history department of Northwestern University. His first book, Thinking Small, is a critical account of the United States' pursuit of grassroots development at home and abroad in the middle of the 20th century. His most recent book, the best-selling How to Hide an Empire, is a narrative history of the United States with its overseas territory included in the story. Willard Sunderland is the Henry R. Winkler Professor of Modern History in the Department of History at the University of Cincinnati, and also currently holds an appointment as academic supervisor for an international research project on the history of Russia's regions at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. He's published many articles on the history of Russian Empire and is the author of two books, Taming the Wild Field, Colonization and Empire on the Russian Steppe, and The Baron's Cloak, A History of the Russian Empire in War and Revolution, both published by Cornell University Press. Here's Daniel Immervar and Willard Sunderland on American and Russian Empire. You both study empire uh, in two very unlikely places, the United States and Russia. So what are some of the issues that characterizes your work? Uh, Let's start with you, Willard. Um, Well, first of all, thank you very much for including me in this discussion. It's great to see... um, a lot of uh, friends uh, in the audience, acquaintances, colleagues, uh, and Daniel, it's very nice to meet you, Sean, too, yes. of course. So um, uh, the question is, uh, uh, what issues do I take up in my work? And I think um, uh, I can start by just saying, I think 
the issues come right out of um, a fascination uh, with uh, the problem of empire in Russian history. And so in a very basic sense, I'm interested in questions that relate to how the empire was formed, um, ultimately how it endured, uh, and in, in, in different times, how it um, uh, discombined itself, or in some more dramatic cases, uh, truly unraveled, and yet, uh, uh, nonetheless, in other interesting ways, reconstituted itself. In other words, I'm interested in basic questions of continuity and change, the kinds of questions that always preoccupy historians, but in this case, uh, I'm interested most of all in seeing how they play out um, in terms of understanding Russia as a, a country of incredible diverse uh, peoples and cultures and uh, far-flung and quite diverse uh, territories. And Daniel? Um, the title of my book is called How to Hide an Empire, and that gives a little bit of a clue to some of my preoccupations. Um, my sense is that the United States um, is an empire, just in the classical sense of having overseas territories, uh, including today. Um, but nevertheless, uh, that fact has been obscured for many people who live in the metropole of the U.S. empire, um, the place, the sort of contiguous United States, what a lot of people in the territories call the mainland. Uh, so what I've tried to do is to find ways to tell the history of the United States where it's not just the mainland, it's the whole unit. But in doing so, I think one thing that, that keeps coming up for me is how hard that is to do, how much you're um, swimming against the tide, because there is such a persistent sense, uh, among even among U.S. historians, that uh, the United States might behave imperially, but it doesn't really, in any real sense, have an empire. Yeah, this is what strikes me immediately, just to, through both of your own description of your work. I mean, for, for Willard... Nobody familiar with Russian history questions whether Russia is an empire, right? Uh, it has been an empire at least since the, the 16th century. Uh, but, you know, and Daniel, and I think this is why your book made such a big splash, is that we as Americans don't recognize um, the United States as an empire. Uh, we It's not part of our national identity in terms of how it's played out, say, in Russia, uh, how do you talk about this relationship between of empire for your respective uh, places of study? Why deny it in in America, and why is it such embraced in the Russian context? Well, I I would say that uh, uh, the Russian Empire is, uh, in so many obvious respects, uh, proudly, unabashedly, assertively uh, imperial. Um, um, it's imperial for uh, the empire-minded people and even outright imperialists that supported its um, expansion and uh, functioning as an empire. It was also imperial for those people who felt uh, the hard weight of imperial power and at different times objected to it. But it's also important to put in the history of the Russian empire, um, this uh, really uh, curious and yet abiding current of, I wouldn't call it denial. It's not that the empire is being denied, uh, because the Russians, uh, and in fact, the, the many other members of a kind of imperial establishment that the believe in the empire's mission, um, don't lose track of its imperialness, um, at least until um, uh, the Soviet period when these questions are sort of re refashioned. Um, but they are concerned with un underscoring just, just what kind of empire the empire is. And to the extent that they can, uh, they want to make it look uh, at least as good, if not better, than the um, other empires uh, uh, around them. And in certain 
cases with regard to certain territories and peoples, there's a very powerful undercurrent of sort of writing away empire and restoring it, replacing it with um, a, a more comforting question, or excuse me, motif of, um, of nation and of sameness, of sharedness. Uh, so some of my work has actually turned on this dynamic, and that's why I, I find some elements of um, you know, Daniel's uh, study to be so resonant with the Russian experience. Because the Russians, for all of their dynamism and great achievement, you might say, historically speaking, in building an empire that um, uh, conquered mass uh, territories and included a wide variety of peoples and ruled over this combination, uh, for centuries, um, broadly speaking, that's a historical success if we want to measure these things um, by by time and power. Um, uh, but but in in the in in the process, they've they've also uh, found ways to disguise their own empire from themselves. Uh, and you can see this dynamic in places like Siberia, in places like the southern uh, European steppe. Um, in the curious and um, obviously uh, powerfully resonant relationship between Russia and Ukraine, even Russia and Belarus. Um, so there are ways in which uh, even for such an adamant and assertive and you might say uh, uh, utterly self-conscious empire, um, uh, there are even ways to see it sharing a, a certain amount of history with uh, the United States, which had a sort of tr a more troubled uh, or at least a more it's an inconsistent relationship with understanding itself as an empire. Yeah, Daniel, in your book, I mean, it's really this this idea of the greater United States as something that's embraced this in this really short period of time in the turn of the 19th and early 20th century. So uh, talk about this, the relation, the American relationship to itself as an empire or its denial of such. Yeah, and I, I, I'll start by making two exceptions, two caveats that I think are probably important. One is... Um, just as Willard said, for the people who have borne the brunt, borne the weight of U.S. empire, Puerto Ricans are not confused about whether the United States has been an empire. That is not news. Um, and there's also a broader sense in which a lot of people talk about the United States as an empire, and that has to do with not its claiming of territories, but its behavior on the international stage. I mean, my parents, who are not broadly known for their political radicalism, are perfectly comfortable naming the United States as an empire. So in, in, in many ways, it is not a surprise to anyone to call the United States an empire. Nevertheless, uh, despite that, and it's, it's kind of even more surprising despite that, um, there is a kind of blitheness, almost bordering on cluelessness, uh, mainly among mainlanders, but but even worldwide, about the United States' territorial dimensions, uh, to the degree that the United States is portrayed by critics as an empire, as it constantly is, uh, that's meant in a more sort of diffuse sense, and and usually that that has little or almost nothing to do with the United States' actu actual colonies and uh, later on with its military bases, of which there are some 750 to 800 uh, foreign bases worldwide. Um, you asked why this is. Uh, it's a hard question to answer. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the 18th and 19th century history of the country, the 18th century history involving uh, a break from Britain and the United States establishing itself within the Americas as a nation state, not an empire, born in a revolt out of empire. Um, but it also has to do with the particular pattern of um, expansion that the United States had in the late 18th and in the 19th century, which is that 
rather than doing the sort of classic British Raj type thing of uh, seizing distant lands and ruling them, um, it it engaged as Russia did in a form of contiguous empire, uh, but but that involved a really crucial ingredient, which is it claimed adjacent lands uh, and then uh, violently dispossessed indigenous populations on them and flooded them with this just like enormous demographic swamping of settlers, uh, largely white settlers with enslaved blacks behind them, uh, that such that the United States felt very comfortable usually uh, uh you know after after some years upgrading these territories to states uh and that sort of created this notion in national culture that yes the united states has territories but they're just states in the making because this is ultimately a place that is you know a place of states of self-governing states it's wall-to-wall carpeted that way uh and and therefore the united states is ultimately a republic and not an empire well, you've raised a lot of issues I want to go into more depth in, in in this relationship between U.S. and Russian Empire. And the first, of course, is this idea of expansion, because it's framed, you know, in, in, in both your, your, your work, empire, the expansion of the United States westward and the expansion of Russia eastward is kind of natural, right? It's just kind of a shared destiny to extend across space. Um, so... And, and this goes to a couple of questions that people have, have, have shared with me to, to ask both of you. And, and that goes to when, do, when does this territory become considered part of the larger empire body, not a foreign body that's a colony or uh, conquered? Um, how does it get incorporated into the larger structures of both of these imperial systems. I mean, you mentioned a bit already, Daniel, about the territories, but Ed Willard, can you speak about the Russian process first? Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, broadly speaking, we're describing comparable processes, processes of expansion that uh, involve um, stages that that we can follow on both sides of this uh, comparative um, uh, you know, undertaking. Uh, you have a, a kind of assertion to... Um, uh, to the land that might actually unfold as a as a as a legal claim, even something as as um, dramatic as planting a, a standard in the soil. Um, uh, then uh, there's a different process of sort of incorporating uh, peoples, uh, in, in, engaging uh, with uh, setting up terms of allegiance, um, or physically um, uh, stepping up to. Uh, exploiting uh, the natural resources of a given territory. And then, um, uh, obviously, in both of these stages, there can be more or less conflict, more or less accommodation and agreement. Um, uh, but ultimately, for the empire to um, sort of establish itself, uh, there has to be this broader phase of a sort of moral ownership, a kind of... Uh, possession um, in a deeper sense of, uh, of the land and the peoples, uh, a move towards the logo map that's a part of, um, you know, the way that uh, uh, Daniel helps us sort of think um, uh, back from the United States to a history of empire. Um, we have to normalize these possessions over time. Um, and that's a very complicated process. It's not linear. It can, it can, it can swerve. It can detour. It can stall. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I think you see that process unfolding continuously in in uh, the Russian past. And in some cases, it ultimately produces um, a true seamlessness where uh, what at different 
points in this in this big unfolding multi-stage process um, uh, might have seen a truly alien territory becomes thoroughly appropriated and recognized as one's own. And this is in, in, certainly what happens with the broader Russian Southern Steppe or with uh, Siberia, despite the enduring presence of um, uh, uh, non-Russian uh, Siberian indigenous populations. Um, these territories become ultimately thoroughly um, appropriated and placed with an understanding of Russianness, um, uh, despite their obviously being part of an imperial history. Um, uh, the, the Russian uh, engagement with federalism is very different than the American one. It does have a part in the Russian path, but um, the, 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 the challenge of incorporating uh, equally uh, related states, that was never uh, uh, the way that the, 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 the Russian process uh, was uh, um, formulated. It was much more a case of bringing in territories on terms that might be distinct to them, um, um, uh, arrangements made with local elites um, but ultimately um, uh, arranged around obedience and fealty to the Tsar. Uh, and that continued for centuries in more or less continuous uh, form, even as the Tsars changed, the technologies changed, um, um, and the size of the state grew dramatically. Uh, Daniel, talk about this in, in terms of the United States, because, of course, as America moved across the, con the continent, as you said, they are just states in the in the making. But eventually, once more overseas uh, colonization or imperialism uh, started, say with the Philippines and then with Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, uh, a place like Puerto Rico is kind of is suspended in animation, right? It's not a state; it's something else. Uh, can you go more into this idea of of how the American Empire? It's the nature of its naturalness and why some territories are part of it and some are kind of on the margins. Yeah, I think Willard put it well in saying that there's, I mean, there are always these questions, right, of assimilation. So there's one question, which is what territories are legally part of the United States or they have been claimed by the United States? That's a very basic question. But then there's a much deeper question, which is of the places that are technically within U.S. borders, which of them are in some, are fully felt including at the Metropole, as as part of the United States, and which of them are felt as just sort of captured foreign lands. And that turns out to be, I mean, it's not, it's in some ways, it's in some ways it's a complex process. In some ways, it's not that complex because there's a magical fairy dust that gets sprinkled over territories that reliably makes them, you know, states and fully incorporated in every sense, which is every sense, which is white settlement. Um, but, you know, something is worth noting is that even on the North American continent, uh, it takes some of these territories a very long time to become states. Oklahoma um, is is a territory uh, or, or various territories for more than a century before it becomes a U.S. state. And then, um, so it's not entirely surprising that the overseas territories also in, are sort of kept in a sort of purgatorial status. Uh, and that has to do with the fact that they are uh, often thickly populated. Uh, they are not particularly conducive to white settlement. They're not contiguous to the to the US mainland. Uh, and, and the result is that the United States just has this sort of ring of of territories at its at its outer edges through its entire history, including now, um, where, you know, the questions keep coming up. Is this place part of the United States or not? Uh, they come up legally. They come up culturally. They come up in in all kinds, you know, in the census. Uh, and, and, you know, and even today, you know, 
I, I would say most people in the United States, if you start speaking to them about the Northern Mariana Islands, where which is part of the United States, where people are U.S. citizens, they would think, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, and surely that's not really part of the United States. So, so these questions uh, persist very much today. Uh, here's another question that that goes to something that I, I wanted to ask but left out, and that is the idea of the frontier and the role of the frontier in in the national character of of each peoples. Uh, how does how does this idea of the frontier? I mean, here in the, in the United States, the frontier is a whole mythology that we are well accustomed to because of cowboy movies and and whatnot. But talk about the role of the frontier, and then and is particularly how did the the well, to speak about first the the role of the frontier in the the the, uh, the national imagination. Yeah, this is one of these chestnuts of U.S. history. Um, <laughs> um, the so famously, Frederick Jackson Turner uh, in eighteen ninety noticed that the uh, census had declared the settlement frontier over in in eighteen ninety, and then he in eighteen ninety three, you know, proclaimed that this was the kind of death of an age of of the United States. Uh, it turns out actually the settlement frontier was not closed by the census's own definitions. It's just that they weren't counting Alaska because of a habit of the census of ignoring parts that are not. But but I mean the point is that like literally the census was like this is what a frontier is. There is no more of it in the United States. But the census doesn't count Alaska. There you have it. Um, so so yeah that that became really important. And you know we have these stories about how the frontier kind of even after it is technically or declared closed, it sort of mutates and becomes animating. Um, Greg Grannon has a book out, uh, The End of the Myth, that just talks about all the different, you know, new ways in which frontier ideology operates and how it kind of keeps pushing the United States forward to exert power in various ways until we finally arrive at the age of Trump where the spatial imaginary is that of the wall rather than the frontier. Um, you know, I'm not so sure that's right. I mean, the the this kind of obsession with frontier ideology, that is definitely a part of the U.S. character. You can see it in Western movies, all that kind of stuff. Um, but but if if you conflate, and Grandin doesn't do this, but but it becomes easy too. Um, if you conflate U.S. empire with the expansionary ideology of the frontier, you, you tend to miss a lot of the ways in which empire actually operates because the frontier is a good way of mapping what happens in the latter half of the 19th century. It is not a great way of happening of mapping what happens overseas. And it really doesn't prepare you for something that I think a lot of U.S. historians miss, uh, which is that the story of U.S. empire is not unilaterally the story of expansion. At other times, it's the story of contraction. Um, and and the, the, the tendency of U.S. historians or people who write about the United States to conflate empire with expansion, I think, means that We've been sort of dipping a little too readily into the Turner bag, um, and 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 we miss a lot of the ways in which U.S. territory actually operates. Willard, what what role does the frontier play in the national uh, imperial character of Russia? Well, in in um, in contrast, to the United States, I don't think there's a single uh, abiding frontier myth or complex of of uh, frontier imaginaries that um, uh, Russians walk around with or usually. Um, think through as they uh, imagine their uh, national past. But um, there are elements of, um, of, of that frontier story that do play an important role and can have an outsized um, um, sort of organizing power over the way certain regions are, are thought of, both um, by the people living in them and um, uh, people far away imagining and making sense of them as parts of the country. Um, 
one of these frontier motifs is that of the, the Sibiriak, the Siberian man, uh, sort of forged by his engagement with uh, rude nature and uh, even ruder peoples, uh, who ultimately then, through this great combination, seems to come out even more Russian than the Russians. Um, uh, then there are uh, Cossacks, uh, the, these uh, uh, frontier communities, um, uh, profoundly in their origins, um, uh, made up of a hodgepodge of groups uh, and uh, confessions, uh, um, but ultimately sort of contained and transformed by the power of the Russian imperial state and turned into, in many regards, the symbol of Russia at the edges, um, both um, uh, the edges of Russia's territory, standing guard, patrolling the frontier, but also the edges of Russian politics, where the Cossacks are the defenders of the Tsar against um, uh, uh, all of the Tsar's most obvious radical enemies. Uh, hence the place of the Cossacks in uh, uh, the Soviet imaginary as the ultimate representation of um, uh, Tsarist uh, uh, overweening abuse. You know? So there are elements of uh, frontier uh, stock characters, um, um, uh, uh, motifs. I mean, if you knock on the door of a typical uh, local history museum, anywhere from uh, uh, the, the Urals to the, to the Pacific, you will see pictures of hard scrabble settlers moving their way across vast expanses. You'll read about the travails that they faced in their first years. You'll read about a great society built ultimately on the backs of their labor and vision. I mean, that does sound an awful lot about what you'd see in Missouri, in Oregon, uh, in Alaska. Um, um, even though it's not packaged quite as um, uh, comprehensively and, um, and you might say magically as the frontier story has been packaged in the U.S. Yeah, both of you, but I mean, settlement is really important here. In the United States, I think as you rightly put, Daniel, I mean, the racial question really has a lot to determine, like white settlers going to and, and you know, becoming a majority uh, of a region, particularly after they cleanse the indigenous populations, but also settlement is is also part of the Russian story as well, particularly into the steppe, as you've written, Willard, and then eventually into Central Asia, northern Kazakhstan. What role does settlement uh, play in in this process of expansion? I think the general pattern, as I've indicated, is that uh, not just settlement, white settlement is is the thing that. Uh, acts as the agent that incorporates territories into states. Uh, and, you know, in the Northwest Ordinance, that's a legal requirement. I mean, there's 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 literally thresholds of free inhabitants that are specified uh, that are, that are you know, part of making a territory into a state. Um, you know, what's interesting to me about this is that by the end of the 20s or by the later 20th century, that logic starts to falter. So um, you get two states, uh, the two, two last states, Hawaii and Alaska, uh, that are much less under uh, sort of firm and obvious ma white majorities, uh, and that are nevertheless admitted to the United States as states. Um, and Hawaii becomes this really sort of wild place from the perspective of U.S. political traditions, because uh, it's not 
firmly under white political control at the time. So its first congressional state slate includes Japanese American person, a Chinese American person. It consistently puts up, you know, all kinds of politicians, non-white politicians, uh, including Barack Obama is from Hawaii. Uh, so just seeing that kind of one exception, the one state that made it through under a different kind of logic, uh, just gives you a sense of, of how um, persistent the logic of white supremacy as the ticket to admission to statehood had been for so long. Yeah, well, there's no question that settlement is critical to understanding um, the formation and endurance of the Russian empire. But I'd say as an imperial state, there were many um, tools in the toolkit or tricks in the trick bag. <laughs> uh, the uh, Russian empire expanded um, uh, through multiple means and usually never uh, one single mean at a go. Um, there was always a mix. But broadly speaking, uh, um, uh, even to go back to the examples I shared with you a few minutes ago, there's no question that settlement helps to make things um, just that more seemingly permanent, uh, seemingly less imperial, more seemingly national, ours from the start. Um, the Southern Steppe ultimately becomes a, a great repository of um, uh, uh, Russian and more broadly uh, multi-ethnic, but Russian-sponsored, Russian-directed settlement. And that's true of Siberia, especially by the very end of the 19th and early 20th century, when the uh, Trans-Siberian Railroad allows for, really by a comparison with previous times, a truly massive uh, uh, um, uh, redirection of Russian settlement streams towards um, Western and eventually Eastern Siberia and um, the Far East. And uh, uh, like all empires that have lasted a long time, uh, different parts have um, come and gone. <laughs> uh, there's there's an abiding stability to um, um, Russian imperialness, but that doesn't mean that every last territory has been there for good. Uh, the one most obvious one that came and went, uh, Russia's claims to North America, Russian Alaska. And it's an interesting uh, example to hold up in the light of settlement. Uh, obviously, there were um, uh, more concerns on the part of uh, Russian empire builders in Alaska that had to do with sea otters than with people. <laughs> but ultimately, when the sea otters were done, it turned out the Russians hadn't put any attention at all or nowhere near enough to putting people on the ground. That is to say, their people from uh, the Russian mainland or the Russian metropole. And uh, you know, by the mid-19th century, they might have been six, seven hundred people in all of the territories. So, sorry, not not indigenous people, I'm not counting uh, them in this particular calculus, six or 700, um, uh, in effect, transplants brought over from the Russian side of the North Pacific. And uh, obviously, uh, that's uh, no way to build a, an enduring naturalized claim uh, to territory. Um, and I think the, the, the lack of uh, a significant settlement presence made it easier, ultimately, for the, 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 the Russian uh, court uh, to consider uh, dispossession as um, very much in Russia's advantage at the time. In both cases, the United States and Russia, you have settlers, and and settlers are are facilitating the the imperial expansion uh, of of each country. Um, how does this uh, factor into how these regions are ruled? And uh, in, in the frontier of the empire, in the periphery of the empire, particularly in the Russian case where you have this, you know, centralization, but it's de facto uh, a light, as, as the, the question puts it, a light footprint of administration on the ground. So 
who administers, how is administration done in these new imperial spaces? Uh, enormous variety, of course. But I think the thing to, to note if we're talking about this question of government and settlers is um, you might think just at a sort of long distance squint that the United States government was sort of pushing the settlers forward at every moment. And and that, like many things that you would see at a long distance squint, turns out to be not right. Um, and, and the reason is there's there's this very complex uh, relationship between the central government and the settlers, which has to do with the fact that the, um, the government in the East Coast and the governing elite in the East Coast actually have a lot to fear from the settlers. Uh, they worry about the um, uh, settlers kind of taking over their... I mean, the elites lands claims, uh, squatting on them and then effectively turning those squats into legitimate property claims. Uh, they worry that the, uh, too quick rush into, uh, Western lands is going to create a United States that's too hard to govern, uh, and where parts of it might cleave off and form their own newly independent states. It's happening all over the Americas. Why not happening? Why couldn't it happen West of the Mississippi, um, or West of the Appalachians? Uh, and, and, um, they, uh, they also worry that settlers are going to involve the United States in a series of Indian wars, which they do, which is entirely correct. Um, so, so on the one hand, you know, overall, the United States uses settlers as sort of, you know, vigilante on the ground forces to do a lot of the labor and the violent labor of um, Indian dispossession. Uh, but nevertheless, that's not a, a thing that is coherently and consistently desired uh, from the center. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of benefit from it. And you'll see folks like Jackson kind of rooting the settlers on. Um, but but it's a complex relationship for the reasons I just said, and, and that, you know, can still be consistent with a broad overall logic of dispossession. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd actually, I'd, I'd second uh, Daniel's attention to the sort of ambiguous role of settlers in uh, the empire building process and even in the um, um, sort, of, uh, sort of cultural vision of the empire and how it should work uh, for all of the ready embrace of settlement as a tool of imperial power. Uh, there was a lot of concern with uh, <laughs> what settlers might do when they got where they were going. Um, uh, there was a constant concern with uh, either moving more of them better than we're going at any one time or stopping so many from going so badly at any one time and then making sure that when they got there, they were ultimately serving the purposes of imperial power as imagined at the center and in the um, periphery, and sometimes that imagination could be actually quite <laughs> uh, different. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I think much as in the United States, uh, you can look into Russia's uh, settlement uh, story and find all kinds of uh, um, uh, uh, concerns about who's the best kind of settler, where they're going, and how, how best to um, manage that settlement. Broadly speaking, there is a much more excited um, um, uh, support for obviously family settlement um, uh, and for settlement that clearly followed the rules either of the landlord uh, moving uh, his or her serfs or the government moving um, in the days of serfdom peasants that lived on state rather than private lands uh, and ultimately could be distributed better by the state's lights to where they needed to go as far as the state's um, uh, priorities might be in a given region. 
Um, and and uh, some curious things happened with frontier um, uh, transformation. For example, in the Russian um, center, there's no question that uh, among the most suspicious of the people who aren't quite like us are the people who are almost like us, which is to say Russian Orthodox who got a wrong idea about how to be Orthodox, old believers and other uh, Russian Christians who um, uh, departed from the teachings of the Russian church. They were suspect. Um, uh, 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 they were um, really, in, in many regards, cast as a, as, a, as a noxious presence within, but moved to the frontier as some of them were at different times um, uh, in the course of exile they actually obtained an entirely different <laughs> standing because um, uh, it turned out that in some of their uh, social and communal behaviors, they were much more respectable in the eyes of local administrators than your average Russian peasant or peasant family, peasant household, peasant village. They didn't drink quite so much. They were more literary. They minded the rules. Um, and all of a sudden out here on the edges of the empire, close to China or, um, you know, uh, 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 metaphorically speaking, a stone's throw from Turkey, they could be fine upstanding representatives of empire. So the, the settlement question is full of all kinds of hues and uh, uh, subtle contrasts and hierarchies that are disguised by this broad, easygoing presumption that colonization worked for the empire. It actually was a very complicated process that uh, could unfold a little bit differently in different places and quite differently depending on who's engaged in it. How did the different regimes of property ownership and conceptions of the best land use practices in Russia and the US shape the ways in which each empire dispossessed indigenous populations and then transferred that land to other groups of people? Uh, Willard, start since you're already here, start uh, with, you can start. Uh, Okay, well, I, mean, I, I, I know we're going to be talking about quite different histories in the basic sense, uh, uh, because the United States and, and Russia have profoundly different histories of property regimes, of approaches to property. Um, but broadly speaking, if we want to put it in the framework of empire, and one of the classic concerns of imperial power is the assertion of power over new land, um, then I, I think we can see some uh, some interesting continuities between Russian and U.S. approaches, certainly with regard to different kinds of, um, uh, of uses of the land. Uh, Russian uh, colonizers beginning in the uh, 18th and certainly into the 19th century um, uh, saw, saw the land uh, uh, possessed by native peoples, uh, especially by nomadic peoples, as land that was fundamentally going to waste, insufficiently uh, turned to use and consequently open for um, uh, 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 what amounts to, in effect, dis disappropriation, uh, seizure in some cases. Um, and this is broadly consonant with politics of, uh, of land appropriation in, in the United States. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, um, uh, one thing I would just put into this picture is since the Tsar was considered, uh, in effect, landowner in chief, <laughs> Um, um, and and uh, ultimately uh, um, vested with the power to seize and distribute land, um, the presumption that territory entered um, uh, the purview of the Russian Tsar meant perforce that the land <laughs> uh, uh, accompanying <laughs> this incorporation of 
of um, local elites um, was also at the Tsar's disposition. More often than not, the Tsar wisely, you might say, practically as, as a good empire builder, uh, uh, largely left that hand in the people who were otherwise uh, making use of it. But when required, that land could be legally uh, repurposed um, and uh, put to the uses of um, you know, different imperial uh, goals. And in that regard, the ultimate, um, I guess, uh, the bottom line of Russian imperial expansion, certainly in a whole range of territories, is, is remarkably comparable then to the bottom line of American um, expansion in places like uh, the Great Plains. Daniel, how does the American uh, property regime influence uh, imp- empire? Well, Willard just said it so well and, and correctly, you know, said what's going on in contiguous North America. That's right. There's a consistent sort of lock derived doctrine about uh, if you're not using the land in the correct ways and the correct ways being settled agriculture, then you haven't really got a claim to it. And that becomes a mechanism by which people who have a shifting or seasonal form of agriculture or food food getting uh, can just be you know moved, or at least that's the intellectual case. I think an interesting thing to note, though, is that th- that model is sort of the model of the, you know, classically of the yeoman farmer and Thomas Jefferson's very invested in it. But that's not actually the only model of land use that is in the metropolitan United States. A really important model is the plantation. And um, the plantation as a model becomes the sort of, it's it's not a form of dispossession, but it becomes the prefer- the the model or the pattern of reorganization in the United States as overseas colonies. I mean, what what U.S. colonization does is uh, tends to encourage uh, sometimes white ownership of plantations, actually sometimes like Filipino ownership of plantations, but plantations nonetheless, um, plantations that can grow tropical. I mean, and these are very much based in the sort of plantations of the U.S. South, plantations that can grow sugarcane, that can grow tropical products, that can deliver them to cash markets. That's a very different model of land use, but actually, and and we tend not to think of that as part of U.S. expansion, but actually it's enormously important to U.S. expansion, um, particularly in the sugar colonies like Hawaii and Puerto Rico. As you both mentioned too, this uh, expansion, of course, comes into contact with indigenous peoples. How does each empire deal with their indigenous population, the indigenous populations? How do they, you know, remove them, incorporate them, etc.? Well, obviously, this is a, a very complicated question because um, it's much too easily pithily summarized and reduced to conquest without conquest being fully understood as itself a very uh, complicated and layered process that can involve uh, violence and dispossession, exclusion, elimination, um, but also a certain amount of accommodation and you might say um, re- 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 reorganization of the territory that can um elevate certain members of an otherwise um, dominated uh, and displaced uh, indigenous population. In the Russian case, um, uh, I, think, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, the, the Russian empire unfolded in certain territories as what, what was effectively um, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the power of a supplanting society, a society that would ultimately help to undo the possession of other peoples on the land. And broadly speaking, if we look w- uh, in those uh, uh, from the perspective in time um, of agricultural people as attractive lands, the lands of the southern steppe or of the great 
uh, uh, sort of plains of uh, southern western Siberia that were home to various nomadic peoples. These peoples were ultimately um, profoundly dispossessed uh, and effectively run off the land. In certain instances, they were encouraged to actually leave the territory of the empire. In others, um, they were encouraged to become more like peasants, <laughs> in effect, to put themselves to another usage uh, um, as directed by um, uh, the broader imperial government. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that in every instance those societies completely found themselves without some role to play in the new arrangement. Um, let's say the displacement, the supplanting, um, that is obviously one part of uh, the history of Russian imperial expansion, didn't mean in every case absolute uh, exclusion. Um, there were ways in which the mantle of empire could make room for indigenous peoples. And in some regions, um, uh, getting down to uh, the relative standing of um, uh, groups that you might identify uh, as belonging to, in effect, the imperial power <laughs> and groups you might identify as being under the imperial power's heel. Well, the, the presumed privilege of one over the other wasn't always obvious. Um, while there were varieties of serfdoms, uh, for example, within the Russian Empire, um, uh, there's no question that uh, the Russian serfdom <laughs> uh, was the largest of all these institutions, uh, one of the ones that endured the longest, uh, and whose degrees of relative exploitation um, uh, were, were greater than the serfdoms that we encounter, or the varieties of unfreedom that we encounter uh, on the part of other peoples. And the Russian imperial government actually tried to maintain this distinction and, in a sense, um, protect <laughs> some non-Russian populations from the importation of Russian serfdom. Um, so there are curious ways in which the empire is always concerned with uh, population management, uh, whether it's called that or not. And that means playing a variety of different cards at different times um, to ultimately produce or angle for um, the, the most coveted goal of all, which was stability, the stability of uh, the imperial construct. Daniel, talk about the confrontation and, and attempts to incorporate indigenous population in, in the American case, and also speak to the to some of the overseas possessions and how those indigenous populations were dealt with. Yeah, I think the logic is a, is a little different. Um, so within North America, the United States first operates on a sort of approach that's about large-scale apartheid, so that there's going to be zones to the west that are going to be Indian zones and zones to the east that are going to be populated by whites and their, you know, enslaved workers. Um, then, you know, by the 1830s, as it becomes clear just how much the white population is growing, uh, and as land hunger from newly enfranchised whites becomes more and more of a political force, you start to see a switch from this sort of continent-scale apartheid to just absolute uh, dispossession, and and in a very stark way, right? Not the, um, I mean, there are some elite attempts to uh, convert Indians to you know the equivalent of peasants, but but basically the logic is um, violence, dispossession, land theft, um, and and the result is is absolutely staggering on the Indian population. Uh, so 
over the course of the 19th century, the numbers that we have aren't great, but but they give you some sense. Over the course of the 19th century, the Native American population in the present-day contiguous United States, so we're keeping the space the same and we're looking at the population, goes down from about uh, 600,000 to, by the end of the century, somewhere around 250,000, so more than half uh, population loss. I mean, that's absolutely staggering. Um, there are a few interesting um, kind of twists to this. One is that despite the attempts of the U- U.S. government to sort of wipe Indian polities off the map, the one place from which they are not wiped is the map. Um, there's a there's this weird tendency of uh, the United States to name things after people who've been displaced from those places. So, in fact, like the majority of U.S. states have um, native names, um, and uh, and you, you know Massachusetts, Utah, Hawaii, uh, and and the other thing to say is that. There's actually been a significant population resurgence. That's really important. It's it's important to understand that even if the um, governing logic was one of um, you know absolute dispossession, um, that 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 wasn't fully successful. And and right now uh, there are the numbers is about this uh, 573 uh, Indian nations that are federally recognized today. So I mean that that really needs to be taken quite seriously. I think um, the story in the colonies is is different partly because of the failure of white settlement as a sort of operational logic in all of the colonies, with the partial exceptions of Hawaii and Alaska. Um, so you know, in for example, the Philippines, there wasn't really much chance that white settlers were going to come in such numbers that they would, you know, displace the in the 1899, you know, some like seven or eight million Filipinos. Um, I mean, was, we're just looking at very different demographics. And so the United States, in those cases, just just shifted to the sort of more familiar European style administrative colonialism, um, you know, emph- you know, uh, imitating the French and the British. Uh, so it had, it had two distinct modes to deal with these um, really importantly distinct demographic situations. Uh, this goes to the question that somebody's asking on the chat. Uh, what about the role of, of indigenous elites uh, in the construction and maintenance of empire. And here I'm thinking not only in terms of incorporation accommodation, but also there's method, there's also mass resistance as well. You know, the, in the Russian empire, there was a long drawn out partisan war fought in the Caucasus uh, and other places with uprisings. And the United States, of course, there was a Philippines independence movement uh, fighting in the Philippines against the United States and then the Japanese. Uh, so talk about this relationship of accommodation and resistance. Sure. And I I mean, I feel like famously, this is the story of the Russian Empire. Uh, but um, it is it is more visible. Uh, it's certainly you can see it everywhere, but it's 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 more prominently visible in the in the U.S. overseas territories uh, where the where the U.S. government tries to sort of co-opt uh, existing political formations and and leaders who are already coughed up by local societies rather than just trying to completely do away with them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's this really delicate balance between um, resistance and collaboration that you see in Puerto Rico, that you see in the Philippines, and um, to the point where major nationalist figures in each, you know, like leading nationalist figures, like presidents at, at various times of, of the both Philippine and the, and the Puerto Rican commonwealths, um, 
can be read completely ambivalently. You can see them either as sort of the most effective nationalist heroes, or you can see them as the great collaborators who sold out the mission. Um, and and I think that's just entirely, that's something that Empire does. Um, and it's a really, in fact, frustrating thing that Empire does is that it, you know, frequently seeks to and offers various rewards to sort of co-opt nationalist leaders. And then nationalist leaders have every reason to play the game, right? Well, maybe we can get some, you know, mild expansion of the franchise if we play along. And so you're always facing that um, field of power and you always have to kind of figure out where you stand in. And of course, famously, this is also the story of um, black politics in the 20th century, right? How much to work with a system, how much to outright resist it. Um, all of those questions come up in really acute and, and often really painful ways uh, within the colonial world. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the largest motifs of my answer are exactly like <laughs> Daniel's, which is say it's a very complicated um, uh, uh, balance between uh, resistance and accommodation. And um, uh, different uh, groups um, and their and their and the elites that presume um, uh, to uh, to to lead them um, make these arrangements at different times. And one should also break down um, uh, these large categories. Uh, uh, if we're going to talk about, uh, let's say, an indigenous group like the Bashkir, uh, nomadic people of the broad southern Urals or region. Um, whose um, um, history um, bumping up and then ultimately having to live within Russian power stretches across centuries. It's hard to reduce that history to a single um, story of either resistance or accommodation. Even any one moment uh, reduced to one or the other is complicated, if only because even during a period of what on the face of it looks like um, uh, really demonstrative uh, um, uh, repossession or, or like a formal reconquesting of the region that takes place in the early 18th century, we have Bashkirs both resisting the arrival of imperial troops and Bashkirs allying with the arrival of imperial troops. Um, uh, and ultimately, we see an arrangement that tries to create some kind of space for um, uh, Bashkir uh, nobles or that is to say the leaders within Bashkir society that the Russians ultimately identify as people of noble birth who can be ultimately incorporated into a system that privileges um, uh, uh, noble power and that ultimately secures the empire as a, a system uh, uh, resting upon these arrangements of allegiance with different nobles in different places. I think the picture changes um, markedly, but in some cases betrays a powerful unfolding continuity when you move into the Soviet period, which might, might be the most sort of disguised period of empire in Russian, in Russian uh, history, if only because uh, the word empire is thrown out. Um, uh, the people in charge are very quick to denounce empire uh, uh, as uh, a great curse from the past, see themselves as doing everything to, in effect, um, play the story the exact opposite way around, not keep uh, 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 non-Russian non-Russian peoples down, but elevate them, bring them up, give them territory, give them all the attributes of uh, recognized status within the state, and ultimately allow even some of uh, those individuals who might be from less fortunate peoples to ultimately preside over the whole thing. I mean, Stalin was Georgian. I mean, he didn't even know the Russian language until he was a, uh, uh, perhaps a 10-year-old boy. Uh, so 
And yet he ultimately comes to rule the state. And so many of his policies are associated with um, very obvious continuities with the worst abuses of Russian imperialism. Uh, so it's a very, very uh, complicated <laughs> picture. I'd hate to be I'd hate to be caught with one quote about it all. Sure. <laughs> that I certainly sympathize. Um, so in looking at both of these um, empires, how do you each of you fit them within the age of empires of the 19th and into the 20th century? I mean, here, the Russian Empire in the 20th century collapses twice. Um, the United States uh, has a moment of in, imperial embrace and then has it changes. Uh, so how do how should we understand both of these empires within the larger frame as, say, the British or the Ottoman or the French Empire? Uh, Daniel? Sure. I think that um, chronologically, the United States fits really well uh, into the global story of empire. And it's been hard for us to recognize in a lot of ways. Um, but if you look at what the United States is doing with territory, and particularly when it's doing it, uh, you get a story that's really not that different from what you see in Britain, France, Netherlands. So uh, in the 18th and the 19th century, you see uh, moments of territorial expansion. Uh, and then kind of reaching the peak of territorial holdings in the mid, uh, sort of the first half of the 20th century. And then, you know, right after World War II, you see for the United States an ambivalent and incomplete process of decolonization. Uh, and what's wild is that the United States does this at the time. Th th that's not the story of the expansion and contraction of its power, but that's the story of its expansion and contraction of land as a as a manifestation of its power. Uh, and you can see that it is responding to the imperatives of the times in that sense. When land matters, it, it's going in for land. When land matters less, it finds other ways. Um, the one way in which the United States, I think, is truly distinct besides this hiding an empire business uh, is this. Uh, after World War II, the United States quite clearly and distinctly engages with the forces of decolonization. It lets the Philippines go. It promotes Hawaii and Alaska to statehood, which is explicitly understood as a way of sort of getting the anti-colonial forces off, off its back. Uh, it has a sort of more ambiguous settlement in Puerto Rico. Uh, but that's when the United States goes on this basis spree and takes there's there's no other country in the history of the world or at the time or now that has anywhere near the number of overseas bases that the United States has. So what it figures out is that um, new technologies allow you to have international control without claiming large clumps of land. Uh, and so it just has these little dots all over the planet. And it's not it's not that no one had ever had ports or anything like that. But but this is just completely unprecedented. So the the story of the United States looks like the its European peers uh, for the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. And then with the one twist that at the latter part of the 20th century, the U.S. finds really profound ways to express its power in, I think, essentially a novel form of territoriality, which is all of these dots that are spread out in everyone else's country. I call it a pointillist empire. Well, uh, there's no question that the Russian um, empire fits within uh, a broader world history of empires. And um, uh, uh, there's also no question that um, uh, stopping your average um, member of the Russian imperial establishment at different times, whether that person was actually a Baltic German, uh, a Polish prince, uh, uh, a, a, a Buryat noble, also uh, sort of brought into the imperial arrangement. 
um, there'd be a readiness to see some of the advantages of Russian power, um, a greater harmony in the construction of the Russian empire, a greater naturalness, uh, while at the same time also pointing out ways in which the empire fell short and should actually do better to keep up with and emulate the empires of the French or the British or in time, um, um, uh, the Germans. Um, uh, by the same token, um, uh, Russia, uh, by its contiguousness, um, does often uh, find itself excluded from these easygoing uh, comparisons with European empires, if only because uh, um, for so much of the history of European empire, we're uh, accustomed to understanding empire as something made far away, something made across oceans. Um, and the Russian empire was close in. Uh, and by consequence, um, there were opportunities to think of it as a place apart. And Europeans assisted in this process by imagining the Russian empire as being constituted somewhat differently, um, and uh, in many cases to European critics, less successfully than uh, the, uh, the European style uh, oceanic empires. But I think as, as students of the, um, of the imperial problem, uh, all you have to do is get into things just a little bit and these break these these categories just begin breaking down. Uh, they begin crumbling away. Um, every empire is its own unique uh, formation um, in, in in many regards. But so much of the way in which every empire is put together is continuous with the processes of power building and power maintenance that are at the heart of any imperial project. So uh, just to bring uh, things to um, um, uh, the perspective that's obviously uh, presented by our discussion today. What of a comparison between Russia and the United States? Uh, uh, for most of the period of the relationship between these two countries, the United States uh, didn't embrace the title of empire. Um, in some cases, were actually quite uh, adamant about rejecting the title of empire, while the Russians were uh, comfortably um, um, uh, imperialist. Um, but it, it's curious how much uh, 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 commonality was perceived at different times by different observers across this divide. I'm talking now of uh, the 19th century, especially. Um, uh, obviously, the countries knew each other poorly. Um, uh, one might say there was very little connecting them in a, in a direct sense. Um, but there were some very comfortable, easygoing generalizations about two comparable, expansive states moving from one ocean to the next, um, uh, following the, uh, the path of the yeoman farmer, or the trusty peasant, um, and ultimately taking on less desirable peoples, um, Asian peoples in the first instance uh, for both uh, countries. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, 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 the comparison or the, the, the obvious family for, uh, for Russia in, in, um, uh, in terms of where to, where to place it um, uh, includes all the empires that we're ready to call empire, uh, and even those states like the United States that um, have a have a just a less comfortable fit, at least in the eyes of some people. What about their respective political systems, right? Because you know Russia, of course, is an autocracy, um, and, and the United States is a is a republic. Uh, how does the particular political systems factor into the, the shape of and, and workings of their each of their empires. Uh, Willard, speak to the Russian case. The, uh, the autocracy is sort of integral to the, an understanding of uh, Russian empire, the supreme central power of the, of the um, uh, uh, emperor, even 
uh, when uh, he or she wasn't called an emperor, um, was ultimately um, uh, essential to the working of the system, if only because for centuries the principal um, um, uh, arrangement for expanding the, the grand prince's or emperor or even general secretary's power was um, uh, uh, arrangements made with um, uh, leaders in these different dominated regions. And, and that allegiance was made with the center and with the most obvious, um, uh, you might say, uh, uh, representation of the center, which was the person of the ruler. Uh, there was very little room in this arrangement for something we'd recognize as democracy, um, but there was politics and there was room for the expression of uh, regional, local uh, interests uh, that would uh, allow us to speak of imperial power sort of conceding at different times to the needs of uh, dominated uh, territories and peoples. Not through the mechanisms of democratic power, but through the, uh, the uh, allowed for channels of politics that supported uh, autocracy. You know, as long as you were uh, making your arrangement with autocracy, there was room for um, political uh, compromise. Yeah, I mean, what I heard Willard say is that there is a kind of consonance in the Russian case between the form of government, the autocracy, and and the fact of the empire. And I think what's interesting about the United States is it's it's quite the opposite. There's a profound dissonance uh, between the geographical extent and the form of the uh, of government in that, you know, once you actually look at the United States on a map, it becomes very hard to describe it as an actual republic. Uh, and there's a constant sort of surprise cognitive dissonance between whenever people, you know, sort of realize that, oh, wait, the United States is supposed to be a republic. But in fact, you know, from day one into the present day and every day in between, it's had territories that are not represented by the Republican mechanisms. Um, so that's been a lot of a source of just sort of intellectual strain and I think has a lot to do with why the territories end up getting uh, swept under the rug. Um, I, um, the, but it it is it is I think also really consequential the the insistence uh, by the leaders of the United States that the U.S. is a republic and not an empire has had major consequences for how they've dealt with the overseas territories. Um, sometimes trying to sort of resolve the colonial contradiction, but a lot of times just refusing to admit that these places are in any substantive way part of the United States because to do so would violate their core tenet about what kind of a place the United States is. Uh, here's a here's a good question that just came over. What are the core homeland territories in the U.S. and Russia, respectively? Do they even exist, or is it all constructed through national imagination, logo maps, etc.? This goes to this abiding question for um, historians, um, anybody who really wants to put their thinking cap on to figure out why we're here in the way that we're here? <laughs> is it all just made up? Uh, are we all just using terms to describe these relationships? Nothing's actually real. There is no such thing as a homeland. There's just something we've decided right now for our own particular reasons to call a homeland. These things get uh, complicated and um, I, I think sometimes um, they can be uh, unnecessarily divisive. Uh, I guess in a basic sense, I would say that this idea of what's home and what's away is always being constructed. There's no, there's no, there's no 
question that these categories can shift. Um, uh, we know, though, but by looking at a broad history of um, of uh, Russian uh, writings about Russia uh, by all kinds of authors, uh, official authors deep within the bureaucracy in some forgettable government report and high-flying literary types, um, and even simple um, writings by uh, less formally educated uh, people. There's an understanding that there is something called Russia, and that Russia is somewhere within 500 miles of Moscow, you know, broadly speaking. There's a kind of Russian center, or there's a sort of, you know, proper Russia proper, a term that, you know, uh, Daniel sort of engages with in the American experience, you know, Amer uh, you know, America proper, well, Russia proper, or, uh, or uh, you know, uh, the real Russia. Or, right? These things come up in different, in different forms. And so even Siberia, which eventually is completely appropriate as a part of the Russian space, depending on where you are in Siberia, at what time, and who you are, you might think of Siberia as not at all Russia. In fact, you would refer to uh, Russia be on the other side, that is to say, the western side of the Urals. <laughs> That's Russia. Siberia is something else. Um, uh, so these things get get very complicated, um, and they and they they shift over time. But I I I I, I guess I'm I'm not for dissolving these uh, this category of home altogether. I I think that even though you can find processes of expansion, settlement, possession over the long course of something that we call Russian history, because it's ended up having produced something called Russia along with other states. Uh, that doesn't mean that there wasn't um, uh, uh, somewhere closer to the beginning some territory that seemed more like where we were from than other places that were ultimately settled and um, uh, incorporated and brought into this understanding of Russia. So I, I think the M M Russian center is still a very powerful idea, very resonant motif for Russians today. Uh, and, and Daniel, does is there a core to America? Is there a homeland? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not endorsing the concepts, but uh, but I want to name it and say that it's a very powerful concept. Um, I, I think you know if you zoom back to like 1903, a cleverly picked year for reasons that I'll explain. Uh, you know, you would be looking at a lot of different land spaces. So don't even worry about you know bases. Um, you know, you'd, you'd, uh, that have all kinds of different relationships. Uh, so you, you'd think, okay, well, Hawaii looks, uh, it's a, it's an overseas territory, but it's, um, an incorporated territory. And that seems like it might be a state. Um, the Philippines is an unincorporated territory. Uh, you know, Eastern Oklahoma, which was then Indian territory is, it's maybe going to, you know, it might be its own thing, might be its own state. Uh, you know, you'd have all these different spaces and, um, and then I think by, you know, by 1960 or so, a lot of that had been resolved. And there's a much clearer sense in the United States of where the core is and where it's not. The core is the states in D.C. Uh, and everything else that is besides is either an unincorporated territory or leased land and kind of a military base. So uh, the states and D.C., people can vote for president. Um, they are covered by the Constitution. Um, outside of that zone, you have an extra constitutional zone where people can't vote for the president. Um, they don't have voting delegates in Congress and they have all kinds of sort of restricted rights. So, um, so I, I think that part of kind of getting through the era of decolonization for the United States was solidifying its core, 
uh, not completely, right? I mean, we still have, you know, more than 500 Indian reservations, but um, but nevertheless, getting some kind of greater administrative and legal homogeneity within the core and defining it with with thicker boundaries um, so that the kind of political questions that, that you would have seen at the beginning of the 20th century, you don't see as much at the beginning of the 21st. I mean, I know, Daniel, what your answer will be, but I would like you to go into this more to this last question. But <laughs> do you consider, do you, con- uh, you know, we, we hear a lot of talk. I mean, you've pointed out, Daniel, that the United States is this kind of, you know, pinpoint, uh, I forget the exact term you use, but this pinpoint networked empire. And, pointillist empire. Po- yeah, pointillist empire. Thank you. Uh, and in the Russian case, in a lot of, you know, media uh, discussion of Russia, we have, you know, Russia trying to reestablish its empire. So the question is, is do you consider the present day Russian Federation and United States empires? Uh, we'll start with you, Daniel, since we already got a preview of your answer. But it, it, I guess I'd add for you, Daniel, is since it, if, it, if the United States is an empire, then how should we talk about it? The most modest definition of empire, the one that I think everyone should be able to agree on, is that an empire is a country that has colonies and outposts. Okay, well, the United States has five inhabited territories, millions of people live in them, uh, and it also has 750, we think, uh, over foreign military bases. If that doesn't make it an empire, I don't really know what to tell you. Um, And then, of course, there are less restrictive definitions. An empire is a country that um, bullies other weaker nations. An empire is a country that can organize international politics around it. An empire is a country whose language and currency are accepted globally, even though it does not accept the language and currencies of of other countries. By all those definitions, which are more debatable and controversial, the United States is also an empire. Yeah, I think the case is fairly a slam dunk. However... You asked how we should talk about it. I I think there's an error that we often make, and I think the error is to treat empire as a pejorative rather than as an analytical category. So, I mean, what I think muddies our discussions is the is jumping from the question of whether the United States is an empire to whether it's good or bad. Now, there's a reason these are connected, right? Empire is not exactly the finest form of government ever invented, and we can have reasonable objections to it. I have many. Um, but but to say that the United States is an empire is not in itself, I think, to condemn it. It's just to point out a fact about its structure of government and where it is on the map. Um, and so so that that I, I think I think step one is just to sort of be honest about the fact. And then be honest also about the fact of what it means for a place to be an empire, right? It, it raises questions, it introduces possibilities. But, you know, if our question is, what is the soul of this country? Who is the country? Then, you know, empire doesn't really answer that. It, it, it might help us start answering that question. Um, but, but I think that's a big thing that we can do to sort of clean up how we discuss the country. And I think that'll help us be a lot more honest about, about what's going on with actually the territorial expressions of U.S. power. Well, um, I, I guess I'd, I'd second um, uh, Daniel's concerns about um, uh, embracing uh, the term empire without pausing to really think it through. Uh, what do we really mean? It's such a um, baggy term. Uh, it can be thrown at just about anything and stick. And of course, for most people uh, in our time, uh, it's, a, um, it's a term of abuse or a term of critique. It's something that is supposed to make you wonder whether you're doing things right. Um, uh, or fairly, at, at minimum. Uh, in the Russian case, I think 
what's more interesting is to step around the term empire and just try and make sense of how the Russian Federation is organized, both economically, politically, and socially. And if we if we get down to it and we analyze those relationships, the relationships that build Russia's economy, the 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 the, the sort of complexity of its society, uh, its political system, there are abiding continuities <laughs> with. Um, uh, patterns set long ago, not just um, uh, in the Soviet uh, decades, but preceding uh, times before. And if we're prepared to solve uh, what we see at work in the Russian state, um, uh, the organization of imperial power, and we're prepared to also see um, those same dynamics in the Soviet time, and we see some of them today, <laughs> then I think it's okay to say that there are elements of imperial power at work in the organization of contemporary Russian politics, uh, uh, economics, and society. But it doesn't really do too much for us because um, it's just a catch-all term. What we want to do is get down into the nitty-gritty. Uh, one thing to pay attention to is centralization. You know, the Russian states remained just staggeringly centralized for an awfully long time, even allowing for an awful lot of de facto autonomy and de facto room to um, get away with doing things more or less as you as you might see fit um, in regions far farther from the center, uh, and that centralization abides today. It, it, it's a powerful element um, supporting the organization of, of uh, Russian politics, the consolidation of the Russian elite, um, and uh, uh, getting into how much this centralization speaks to the particular type of Russian empire, that would be an interesting uh, question. Could, the Russian, uh, could, could, could Russia be a truly federalist empire? It didn't, when it, when it gave it a go as the Soviet Union, it was much more centralized than federalist, I would say, <laughs> which seems to suggest that the Russian uh, uh, way of being imperial requires this uh, really dramatic uh, centralization. So anyway, that's where I'll leave that. Well, before we uh, we call it quits, I'd like to give both of you an opportunity to uh, make say anything that you wanted to say but didn't say, or anything you'd like to add before we we leave. Well, I uh, I I want to applaud the uh, exercise of putting these two histories together and allowing us to think of them. Um, both intersecting at times, um, but at a minimum uh, alongside one another to see how much crossover, how much uh, useful parallel we can find in the um, other story across the way. Because I, I, I do think there are so many evocative uh, uh, comparisons. You know, uh, when I first began studying uh, Russia, I um, uh, lived in the Soviet Union uh, uh, as a student for about six months. And I, this is during the Gorbachev time, and there was a lot of excitement for Americans. I remember being in a number of apartments, um, struggling to follow with my bad Russian at the time. Um, invariably, there would be somebody with great excitement leaning close to me and say, we're the same, aren't we? The Russians and the Americans. I mean, big countries, uh, bold people. Um, we go places, space, <laughs> you know? And um, I... I, I uh, wasn't really capable of joining a truly intellectual conversation in some cases because I was uh, I'd had too much uh, of vodka, but in most cases simply because my Russian wasn't very good. But I was struck by the idea that it just seemed preposterous. You know, the, the country seems so completely different. I was completely blinded by the just 
over-the-top commercialism and um, um, materialism of American life. And the Soviet contrast seemed so striking at the time. It just seemed like the countries uh, couldn't possibly have that much in common. But of course, as I've grown and, uh, and, and thought more about uh, some of the deeper ways in which the countries line up, there are abiding uh, uh, commonalities, even among all the differences. And I think we should uh, pay attention to them. I, I think we should make them part of the way we talk about uh, the relationship between the two countries um, uh, alongside um, our concerns with competition, uh, threat, and the rest. Yeah, I think one similarity, I mean, I'll name this for the United States, and I strongly suspect that Willard would affirm it in the Russian case. Um, we haven't really just said this out loud, so I'd like to say it. It's not just an interesting fact that these countries have peripheries with you know, ambivalent sort of levels of assimilation and rights and such. Uh, it's a really important fact. In fact, you know, I would contend that you cannot understand U.S. history without looking at this sort of territorial fringe, that a lot of key events and episodes only make sense when you have your eye on that edge. And that's something that U.S. historians have not largely argued. Uh, usually the sense of U.S. history, at least the, tradi the very traditional sense of U.S. history, is that the action happens at the core and the periphery is, well, peripheral. Uh, and, you know, we've undergone some rethinking about that. And I think we're still continuing to undergo that rethinking. Um, but but I would just make the plea for the study of empire in these cases as not just a sort of, you know, question about the moral content of these countries or the question of their similarity or dissimilarity to each other or to European empires, but as as actually a methodology, as a way to to understand them in a in a fresh, exciting and revelatory and important new way that we haven't always done. That was Daniel Immervar and Willard Sutherland. Daniel Imovar is a historian of the United States and the world, serving in the History Department at Northwestern University. His most recent book is the best-selling How to Hide an Empire, which is a narrative history of the United States with its overseas territory included. And Willard Sutherland is the Henry R. Winkler Professor of History in the Department of History at the University of Cincinnati. His books include Taming the Wild Field, Colonization and Empire on the Russian Steppe, and The Baron's Cloak, A History of the Russian Empire in War and Revolution, both published by Cornell University Press. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. You can help support this podcast by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank all my patrons for your continued support. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Thank you.